You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to an all new episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me is Dan. We're going to talk all things Apple, iPad, iPhone, and more. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for having me. Let's start talking about iPhone 8. So uh, there, there are two different rumors going around right now. And the first is that the iPhone 8 is going to have a curved glass back. Is that a good or a bad idea? Well, I mean, the advantages of glass is that it lets radio through. Um, you see that on the on Apple Watch. There's a glass, it's actually ceramic back. It lets both light through and for this blood sensor and also uh, accommodates uh, wireless charging, induction mm-hmm. charging. So that would be one advantage to having... Another material on the back could be glass, could be something like um, ceramic that Apple's been working with on the watch and other places. Yeah, and uh, it's also a nice, tough material, right? Yeah, both. I mean, if you look at um, the way that Apple's using glass in the Apple stores and in the new Apple Park, they're doing kind of amazing structural things with glass. That You, you think of glass as being so fragile, like windows, but... Uh, there's a lot of things that not only in just huge thick construction glass, but also like you were mentioning the, uh, the face of the glass face on things. Apple calls it ion X glass, or I think it's gorilla glass is Corning's brand name for it. That every year they come up with new formulations that allow them to do new things and, uh, resist shattering and things. So glass is changing in terms of like what it actually is and what it can do. But the, uh, the schematic that, that we published most recently that um, was in the purporting to suggest that maybe there's a touch ID on the back of the thing, uh, it looked like that was kind of more of a, more along the lines of a unibody design, kind of what it looks like. I don't know if that's, there's so many rumors to choose from. It's kind of like standards. There's so many to choose from. <laughs> yes. Uh, although this, well, I was going to say the standards don't usually lie, but that's not true either. The standards are just as much of a lie. Uh, you're, you're right. Looking at this particular drawing, it's it's got bosses for screws, for example, to hold things down, and those would normally be machined as opposed to something formed out of glass. And it also shows the uh, the camera being vertical, which is being interpreted as being if Apple goes with this Something Presuming like, any of this uh, is true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're reading a lot into a picture we've got from China, but uh, there's been a number of different sort of visualizations of the next iPhone, iPhone 8 or iPhone 10 or whatever it's going to be, showing a camera orientation that's along the wide access, access so that you could... Uh, that would be the most natural way to use AR if you were looking at a looking at a scene and wanted to manipulate it. On iPhone 7, it's uh, horizontal in the portrait mode so that you can take portrait photos, which is the way that Apple's currently using multiple lenses. So that, I mean, that's somewhat plausible to think that that would be the way they do it. Um, it shows a cutout for the Apple logo and also a circular cutout that, like I said, was speculated to be Touch ID. We had a conversation before talking about whether that would 
be reasonable. Uh, I think in the way that I look at it, I find it very unlikely that Apple would uh, go through the effort to remove the home button on the front. You just feel like, I mean, we were talking about this before. Am I correct in saying that your feeling is that they would be resistant to putting it on the back because that would be copying the implementation of Android manufacturers who've placed Touch ID or placed, rather, a fingerprint sensor on the back? Yeah, well, partly, I think if Apple did that, yes, it would look very copycatish. And um, if that was a good idea, I think they would have done that from the beginning. And if you look at Android phone makers, the primary reason why they put the Touch ID, on, or the, you know, their version of Touch ID on the back, fingerprint sensor, was primarily because Android doesn't have the sense of a home button. And also, um, could be like a patent thing. Right. Well, Samsung uses a, a home button, and most other manufacturers use a virtual on-screen one. And... Uh, so it's always kind of awkward because you've, you've always had that sort of choice in Android to use physical buttons or uh, virtual ones. Yeah, but they've never been combined with the, the, the fingerprint sensor has never been combined with a home button on an Android device. Right. So Apple, you know, Apple doesn't design their phones from scratch every year. I mean, they have a, they have an internal roadmap. <laughs> they, they have a sense of what they're doing. And if you look at the technologies that they're working on, they're constantly building on top of what they've done before. And it's no clearly way. part of a plan. Okay, very rarely do you see a situation where they've kind of reverted something. Um, one example is scroll bars on the Mac. You know, they said, hey, we're going to do natural scrolling, which means it's going to feel opposite for a while. But um, that's the way it is on the iPad, and this will, like, converge everything so it'll all be natural. And it took people a little bit of time to get used to that, but it made sense to do that. And also, you know, that was um, putting together the 80s and the 2010s. You know, that was well, a huge change in technology that they put back together that isn't right. like hey we designed the ipad today and we decided to whimsically have it scroll different no i mean that was like a very long period of time for, for things to change so for to think that apple created touch id in 2012 and then a few years later they came out you know with iphone 7 that touch id is now a virtual button and then the next year they're just going to like split touch id and um the home button and put the touch id on the back so it looks like an Android phone. There's just so many seems like, very impossible red flags there. I don't I don't see that happening. And the the main thing driving this idea that that Apple would need to put Touch ID in the back is that that they couldn't figure out how to integrate into the screen. And I think if Apple couldn't figure out how to integrate into the screen, they wouldn't. The same way that when Apple couldn't really figure out how to make iPhones bigger in the time frame of iPhone five. They didn't put. They didn't come out with a big iPhone that didn't really work right, or that used mm -hmm. a low quality screen like Android or Samsung had been using. They went to a screen that was slightly taller that developers could, you know, just tweak their apps a little bit. They didn't have to ha come up with a whole new framework for doing um, more flexible development, so that you could create apps that scaled from a regular iPhone to a bigger iPhone. That took yeah. some time to do, and so they incrementally did it, and they kept using smaller screens until that happened. It took them two years to do it. So I think if Apple couldn't figure out how to integrate the home button into the screen with Touch ID, they wouldn't do it. They would leave the home button there and say, this is how iPhones work. 
Fair enough. So if you had to speculate, what would you imagine that that little circle in the drawing is for if that circle isn't and that drawing is in fact real? I mean, the most plausible thing is just like Apple Watch, it would be for induction charging or possibly some other sensor. But um, even like you were mentioning, other Android phones that do have a touch uh, fingerprint sensor on the back, it's up higher where on that schematic it shows like the Apple logo. That's it's dead center. It. Yeah, that's where your finger naturally goes. So to have the center button calling that touch ID doesn't is like another reason why that doesn't make sense. And again, all this is based on speculation from an analyst who doesn't know really anything about the technology. I mean, if you read what he says, hmm. he's sometimes said interesting things about, you know, money, but he's never said anything about technology and how things are developing. And this whole story is based on the idea that he didn't hear of any reports of components being sold between here and there. And so it's probably Apple just doesn't know what it's doing. And, you know, they're, they're, you know, in flames in this. As opposed to he doesn't know how to look at what components are being ordered. Right. He he might've missed it. He's expecting to see sales, uh, Apple placing order for components and they're in his understanding of the world, they haven't happened yet. So that means that Apple isn't figuring out how to do this thing of integrating the home button into the screen. Yeah. Um, yeah, I find it very unlikely that Apple would put a home button on the back and also very unlikely that they would split the functionality of the home button and the touch ID. But, you know, I mean, anything can happen. I just don't think that that's likely. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the environmental report. The, uh, this, this is a report that Apple puts out every year. It's the this year's 2017 Environmental Responsibility Report. Uh, have, have you read the report? I looked it over a little bit. Okay. So what, in, in your estimation, were the interesting things to call out from it? Well, the interesting thing that Apple called out from it was um, kind of setting up this delivery through, was it uh, Vice? Mm-hmm. Um, where they had Lisa Jackson, who does environmental work, go to Vice and give them an exclusive interview saying, you know, basically our approach to dealing with the, the most serious problem that we have left in terms of kind of environmental issues. Yeah, she, she's the VP of environment for Apple. So, uh, One of the, the biggest issues that they're, they're dealing with is this idea of conflict minerals and uh, related things that either come from war-torn parts of the world or are mined in difficult and atrocious circumstances. Things like, I believe, cobalt used in batteries. Like, they need it, but... Um, it's really hard, difficult to source because even if Apple tries to source responsibly, there's you know just so much pressure for companies to go out and get these kind of gray market or whatever the correct term is for it, buying it from kind of illegitimate sources where it's causing a lot of harm to the people and the environment. And um, so the best way to deal with that is to not have to deal with it. Um, so ideally what they would like to do is recycle and get back enough of these components to not need to mine new materials. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're doing it by taking old iPhones and recovering the materials back out of them. Is that, that's what's going on here? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that they showed off before, um, was this Liam robot for taking things apart, uh, expertly. And generally the way that materials are, the way that old electronics are recycled is they're just shredded. And then sometimes you can melt down and 
kind of separate things, but you don't get as much material and you don't get as high of a quality of material. So if you can disassemble them as much as possible robotically, you can get back a higher quality material and in more quantity that actually you can reuse in, in um, new products. A lot of recycling, you know, you can shred up all kinds of plastic and it, you have kind of a shredded plastic thing that you can use for things, but you can't make high quality plastics out of that anymore. Yeah, even second generation silicone is, is not as good as first generation silicone. Yeah. So to the extent to where they can separate some of these metals as much as possible to where you get a clean supply of it, then you can reduce your need to mine more in ways that are, are difficult to control. I mean, it's difficult for Apple to like fully control the entire market for things like tungsten and uh, cobalt and some of these materials. Things like that. Yeah. So their, their goal, as I understand it, is they want to eventually be able to take an, an iPhone and make everything that's within an iPhone come from recycled material. That, you know, at this time, that's kind of impractical, and they're not sure how they're going to get there. But the, the idea is that it, as much as possible should be built from recycled materials. Right. And the fact that this Liam robot was designed specifically for iPhone 6 is kind of interesting, because that's when Apple started going to massive numbers, tens of millions of devices of the same thing. And they've been doing that for the last three years. So, I mean, there's not a tremendous amount of difference. I mean, you could kind of adapt it to go 6 and 6S and 7 and um, continue to use the same technology to do that as opposed to, you know, if you had all kinds of different phones that were in different shapes and sizes, all selling in tens of millions of devices, it would be very difficult to have a recycling project that would work as effectively on that kind of scale. It, it seems to me that it's possible because the, the, the robot knows the dimensions of things, the robot knows the physical locations of things, and, and which tool or bit to use to unscrew whatever. But that's all programmatic, right? So you just have to be able to program the recognition of what device it is you're disassembling and then adjust accordingly. Right. And, I mean, the kind of things that they portray with that is uh, being able to take apart a device that you know, it shows it grabbing the screen and pulling it off. And, you know, if you had a, a stack of a million iPhone and Android phones, um, well, you just couldn't you know, do that. You have to, so there are some presumptions, right? The, the, the first presumption is that all of these devices are nominally assembled in similar fashions. And then for iPhone, that's relatively true in that, you know, ever since iPhone 5, you've used a, a suction cup to pull the screen out. So the Liam robot could do that kind of thing. Um, when it comes to saying you're going to also recycle Samsung devices and, and everyone else's, that gets a little harder because the, the methods used to assemble it aren't necessarily the same. Yeah, it gets dramatically harder. And even, be, you know, if you look at Samsung's product line, um, they have a flagship. They call it the S, like the S8. S8 now. Um, SGS8. That's not one model. That's a brand name that applies to a lot of different things. The most obvious difference is, you know, there's two different versions of it that have completely different application processors in them. They have um, different materials throughout. I mean, it used a few years ago, they had four or five different radically different models. There's some models of, of, of um, major Android flagships where certain models of them work with, with uh, what's it called, Android 
um, auto, their CarPlay like thing. Yeah. And some of them don't. You know, it's just like it's. Well, that's that's changed because fractalization. Uh, everything now. There's there's even a version of Android Auto where it just displays the interface on the screen for in-car use as opposed to trying to mirror over to the uh, the radio. Yeah, but that works on you know a Nexus phone. No, no, that Pixel works on phone, everything. But ac- across across Android, nothing works. No, no, that that Android Auto thing works on every one of them. Android seven. Uh, Android six. Yes. No, no, no. Android Auto is a part of Android Auto, and it doesn't work on specific models. Android Auto. I mean, in actuality. No, Android Auto works on pretty much everything that's running uh, Marshmallow forward. Keyword is. Pretty much. That's a big ass. No, no. It's. I'm telling you, it's running on everything. It's running on really, really crappy Alcatel Pop 4 Pluses and Samsung J3s, which are the freebie devices that Verizon and T-Mobile will give out with no charge. I'm not saying that it can't work on a variety of devices. I'm saying that there are major flagship phones that do not work. They report... You're, not being able to you're work. You're going to have to find me those examples because I, I okay, I'll, can't I'll believe it. it. It's it's got to be insane. Yeah, you're, you're mistaken. It, everything about everything about Android is can't believe. There's it. a lot of ton of there's a ton of faults in Android, but the Android Auto. So what Google's been doing, and this is this is another sort of half implemented attempt, but for years people have complained about the lack of updates and the lack of keeping things current and the the difficulties in keeping people can on consistent levels both in terms of security updates and in terms of major os updates and part of that's because android uh google issues the aosp and then the handset manufacturer adapts it to actually work on their handset and then the carrier acts as a roadblock and says we have to verify and qualify this this new version on our network so so two things are going on to try and route around that that all those roadblocks in updating android and updating handsets for the the future going forward, Android, Google is working with carriers and working with the uh, handset manufacturers to try and be able to give those updates a lot faster. That's the OS level. To route around this damage for the past several years, what they've been doing is taking the the core features that people really cared about or needed being updated and turned them into apps that are updated through the Play Store regardless of the version of the the OS on the phone. And so Android Auto, for example, instead of being a feature distributed with the OS, is a fe- is just a separate app, and it works on all of the, the Android handsets that you can care to think of. Uh, it works on things that run Lollipop, it works on things that run Marshmallow, it works on things that run Android 7. And, you know, even the junkiest of handsets, like the, the Samsung J3, which is, the, as I said, the freebie phone, it works. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of expected to because it, it's been out for several years. But, I mean, just well, but until recently, it, it that works by the virtue case. of them separating it out from the OS that they've had trouble getting updated and putting it in as an app. And they've been doing right. that as their Trojan horse. That's That's been their way of solving this problem is, is saying that, you know, instead of having to... to you know, it doesn't solve the problem perfectly because, like I said, security updates don't get to every phone, which is terrible. But um, in terms of features or functions, it, it does fix a lot. Right, but that level of attention to trying to figure out how to make it work is because of the fact that Android phones, even if it's a specific model, does not mean that it's one specific thing. Now, an iPhone 6, for example, could be, you know, one of the different carrier variations. Well, there, there are really only two SKUs, right? Processor. There's the AT&T T-Mobile SKU and then the Verizon Sprint Everyone Else SKU. 
Uh, I think there's more than two, but it's, yeah, I mean, an iPhone 6 is kind of an iPhone 6. There may be, like, slight differences in how it's, uh, you know, the carrier. It's, it's the LTE it's bands. designed to use. And, you know, whether it's designed to be used in China or not. But they're effectively the same device. Whereas that's not the case in Android. If you see a Galaxy S6 or whatever, it could be one of a number of different products. The European version, the US version. Totally, yeah, totally different chip in it. And a totally different this and that. And, yeah, I mean, they're radically different. And as you move away from, it gets even worse. All right, so... In terms of recycling, we, we agree that the recycling program is good. And, and what do you think, how, how optimistic are you that they're going to be able to make an iPhone that's completely built out of recycled materials? Well, it's pretty challenging considering, especially the scale. I mean, they're built, they continually build more and more iPhones. So, I mean, at some point you can't have a zero feedback loop. But um, the more that you can reduce your dependence on needing outside materials, you know, obviously that's better. And it's probably the best approach to solving that problem is to be able to create your own supply. And also it's much better, you know, there's a lot of these kind of um, conflict materials or or things that are just super rare that it makes no sense to throw them in a landfill and try to get more of them. So, I mean, recycling is a a great approach to that. Um, I think a, a big part too of emphasizing the recycling was to kind of coach the environmental report so that it wasn't picked up by clickbaiters who scan through it and try to find something that they can skewer Apple for reporting that they did. Like, oh, here's a, you know, you found some company that was using kids for labor. We're going to report it as Apple's using kids for labor still. So I I think, you know, part of it is kind of trying to manage how the information that they're voluntarily publishing that pretty much nobody else does is sent out in a uh, kind of responsible way. So if you're a small business owner who struggles with tax stuff, don't stress, because freaking out and burying your head in the sand will not solve your problems come tax time, which what will help you is bringing FreshBooks into your world. FreshBooks is the ridiculously easy-to-use cloud accounting software that's made for people who can't stand doing their taxes. It will transform the way you handle your taxes because it keeps all your cash flow details in one place, so you know exactly what invoices you've sent, who's paid you, and what your income is. And their mobile app allows you to take pictures of your receipts and organizes them for later, which makes claiming expenses a breeze. You can even set up FreshBooks to import expenses directly from your bank accounts. Everything you need to stay completely zen come tax time, not panicked. For a 30-day free trial, go to freshbooks.com forward slash Apple Insider and enter the code Apple Insider in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's freshbooks.com forward slash Apple Insider and enter the code Apple Insider in the How Did You Hear About Us section. The great thing about taxes is if you miss it one year, they come around the next year. I'm not sure it works that way exactly. <laughs> no, no, I don't, I don't mean last year's come around. I mean another set. So you always need... It always happens again. Yes. Tools for taxes. Yes. Yeah. You, 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 and <laughs> Death and taxes, yeah. You're, you're not late. You're just very early for starting for next year. Is that, that yeah. that's the idea? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we, we were talking before about the Mac Pro. And we, we, we'd gone through the history. We discovered that, or uncovered that, you know, they first introduced the cheese grater case, the big aluminum tower in 2006. And... There, there were three years, 2008, 2009, 2010, where they updated each year, but pretty much ever, otherwise, it was always every two years. And uh, that there was, what, just a little over a year between when they last updated the tower until they update, introduced the cylinder. 
So the tower was in, what, uh, June 11th, 2012, and the cylinder was October 22nd, 2013, if I'm remembering right. Yeah, and that's kind of good to keep in mind when people talk about, oh, the, the you know, cylinder Mac Pro hasn't been updated in three years. It's crazy. Um, Apple hasn't updated it every year or every few months. They were updating it before every couple years. And so, um, you know, if you put that in perspective, that means they've kind of slipped a year more than usual. And it makes sense because the PC market is changing radically. And of, of the people who would buy a Mac Pro, those are being, you know, a, a large number of those people are now buying iMacs because iMac has also changed as a product over the last several years. Well, and of course, people are going much more mobile. There's a lot of professionals that can now use a mobile device kind of exclusively on their desktop. But also the, the cylinder was not the easiest machine in the world to make an update for, was it? Well, yeah, it wasn't. It was it was difficult for Apple to update, but it was also a problem for. Um, I mean, third parties didn't. If you bought one, you couldn't update it yourself. There's not PCIe slots on it. Um, it's kind of all just like built in one cube. Um, it, it was a lot like what Apple's approach was to everything else they do in, in terms of making a nicely designed, totally integrated thing. But that was kind of clearly the wrong way to approach the needs of people who wanted a pro machine. Right. There, and there, 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 were people, that. there were people who just wanted another year of the tower, right? They give us the same old cheese grater case with newer guts and carry on, right? That was the recipe that people wanted. Well, I mean, yeah, that appeals to a lot of people. It's just sort of a generic PC. Um, it's If you look at the reasons why Apple went to the cylinder mac pro um it's kind of similar to why apple doesn't sell televisions it's a big heavy product that's large and requires a lot of storage i mean it's, it's a big old-fashioned product and there's some people that that appeals to and in fact there's some people that are using the previous uh form factor of the mac pro and it actually allows them to do for example put in a new gpu into one of the pci slots um Apple was kind of banking on having two GPUs in the device would kind of better fit in with people's workflows and be kind of erase the need to have a, a new GPU on a regular basis that you plug into a slot. Uh, but there's a number of things happening all at once. There's one, people are moving to portables. Two, people who are pro users who want a kind of integrated device are going to want to more likely to buy an iMac because it's integrated and it's, you know, all-in-one device. It's simple. So what is that? who does that leave wanting a, this new Mac Pro design? It's fewer. And that's happening at the same time when just the demand for PCs in general are going down because people are moving to mobile devices and people are less likely to, to buy a powerful Mac to sit on their desktop in their living room. So there's a whole, thing, whole, whole lot of things happening at once and Apple's answer to it really missed the mark in terms of what they were expecting to sell, I think. And the fact that they sold so few of them kind of prevented it from being updated regularly. Yeah, but, but so, you know, the, my question to you is, they sold very few of them, and, and Apple's interpretation could have been seen to be, no one wants a Mac Pro, when it, it's the wrong result, wrong, wrong conclusion. The right conclusion would have been, no, we wanted the other thing that you used to make. Well, yeah, but, but that's, it's a combination of those things, yes. Okay. But... I mean, Apple was selling the Mac Pro. They knew how many people were buying it. They knew that 
the market for that kind of machine was not tremendously viable. Same way that, you know, they were selling Xers. People were buying Xers, but they weren't buying them in a quantity to make it worth continuing that model. And really, the, the kind of things that they were doing for the Xserve in terms of making it easy to use and um, looking nice, those aren't things that people who buy servers really care about. And the Mac Pro is kind of in a similar thing where the people who really want a huge, super powerful machine are more likely to want, you know, wide open expansion and some of the things that this thing didn't do. And it was also priced kind of in their range as opposed to, I mean, didn't even appeal to people who wanted like a faster Mac mini, you know, right. It was kind of out of their price range. So there were a lot of, a lot of ways that it didn't really find a market for itself. So it's not really surprising that Apple hasn't updated it. It's not terribly shocking that they had updated it a year later than they typically had been updating their Mac pros before they came up with the cylinder. Um, it is interesting that they came out and said, hey, we're, we realize that this isn't really what people want and we're going to make a more modular version. And, you know, the most obvious solution to the Mac Pro is making it just so that it can accommodate PCI cards for graphics. That would solve a lot of things um, for a lot of the market that wants to buy it. And it would be a lot easier solution than constantly updating a very uh, integrated design that has GPUs welded onto the tremendous triangular heatsink in the middle of it. There's not really a Mac gamer. <laughs> when people say, when people talk about PC gamers, they're talking about something very specific. And it's people who basically don't buy terribly powerful machines, because you don't have to have a terribly powerful machine to, to play games, but they have a tremendously powerful GPU in them. That's typically what it is. So, should, should Apple's new Mac Pro be targeted as a gaming rig? This was a question that was put to me by one of our listeners, and so I'm asking it to you. The the PC gaming market uh, is very different than what Apple does. They're, um, most PC gamers use a, a PC that's not terribly powerful, but it has a good GPU in it. And so it's kind of everything about that market is not really what Apple's great at. I mean, it's not what Apple's really delivering. And also games themselves are designed for Windows. That's why people don't do a lot of gaming on Linux or something else like that. Uh, because all these games are developed first for um, Windows, because that's what the market is. Oh. Can, I, can I modify that a little bit? Sure. Linux has always been a moving target and it's been tough to do because everyone's got their own idea of what Linux is. That's changed a little bit thanks to the Steam machine and what Valve's doing where it's it's still in small numbers but at least Valve has said here's the target spec for what a Linux machine is. Here's what Steam OS is for a Linux machine. And with that there have been some games and more games that are being written against that. So it, it's it's better than it was in a view for Linux. My question is, is it sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy for, for Mac in this respect? Because Apple's made efforts before, right? Apple's did everything as OpenGL, and then Apple did uh, Metal, for example, to be able to get closer to the GPU. And Apple showcased Unity for years, trying to... They, they've always had some part of a keynote that focuses a little bit on gaming, and for years it was focused on gaming on Mac. 
So is it that games aren't written on Mac because there's not enough support from Apple, or is it simply that games aren't written on Mac just because they aren't, because it's just Windows is for games? Well, there's kind of a catch-22. I mean, um, Microsoft would like, on the on the flip side, they would like to have mobile apps written for Windows Mobile or Windows Phone or whatever they're calling it. Um, that's not just going to happen. And no matter, well, they've worked really hard at trying to make that happen, and nobody's cares. Because well, Windows Phone is pretty much a dead end. Yeah. I don't think they're actually selling any right now. Yeah, but they probably have sold, um, at some point, a similar number as there were Macs. So if you talk about volume, the the Mac volume is very small. Apple sells something like 5 million Macs a quarter, which is really good. I mean, that's the most Macs Apple's ever been selling. They've almost sold 6 million you know, in a quarter. Um, but compared to mobile devices, is nothing. You know, even a tiny platform, even like, you know, Pixel is selling, you know, three or four million. They're selling in the Mac category. That's nothing in mobile. They make up a shred of Android and they make up nothing compared to the iPhone. People talk about it like it's important, but it is not an important product in terms of, you know, mobile scale. So when people build new games, when Nintendo has come out with, you know, um, Pokemon Go and... um, what is the Super Mario Run? Super Mario Run. They w- went for iOS first. Part of that was partnership with Apple in those specific cases, I think. But a big part of it was not only does Apple have the biggest addressable market, but all their phones are the same. And in Android, everything is totally different, and some things have gyroscopes that don't work, and you know all these examples of you know totally different GPUs and architectures and things. It's difficult to define. So you have a hardware problem. You have um, a market problem. You have a demographic problem. How do you sell games to Android when nobody wants to buy anything? Everything is stolen on Android. Something like 80-90% of all software is stolen. Um, all those things lead up to mobile gaming being on iOS. On the desktop side, it's a similar problem for Macs. So it's all on Windows. How does Apple get well, meaningful wait, market wait. share? Are are you suggesting? I just want to be clear. You're you're not suggesting that something like eighty percent of software is stolen on Mac, are you? On, I said on Android. You said on Android before, and then you said it's a similar situation for Mac. So I just wanted to make well, sure. Well, in in PCs, there is an awful lot of software that's stolen. I don't know exactly. I haven't seen metrics on it, but there's certainly much more um, piracy on PCs and Macs than there is in iOS. Okay. The the Mac App Store is a totally different thing. It's kind of a ghost town. I mean, there's there are things there, but it's not nearly as on the scale of iOS App Store. So how does Apple, and, and how much resources does Apple devote to getting Macs, um, to be getting, you know, serious gaming on Macs? They're building the tools. They're putting, they're making it possible to do that. Um, they would like to have games. But in terms of being a really, you know, important part of, of their business, it's not going to be. In part because if you're a gamer, you want to have access to all the new games that Apple just doesn't have the, the clout to pull all those games to its um, installed base of, you know, 100 million max or in that area. Apple has an installed base of something like 400 million iPads. So yeah, it's a lot easier to get 
gaming companies to build, you know, novel games for iPads, iOS, than it is to get anybody to build games specifically for Mac outside of, you know, kind of smaller projects. So when you're talking about like triple gate triple A type projects, getting them to the Mac, it's difficult. And it's it's certainly not I don't think it's in the things that Apple puts on their highest priority just because it's not attainable. Now at the same time you're talking about a lot of these things that Apple is doing to make um all kinds of graphics development, including games, work better on Macs. They have a series of you talked about metal, which makes um, using the GPU a lot more efficient. There's also a series of gaming frameworks that they've been building up a library of so that you can do it kind of ostensibly just for gaming, but also other things. I think AR is going to start being built on top of that. Um, things like SceneKit and um, working with three-dimensional sprites and uh, things like that. So, I mean, it's like they're working on it, but to say that Apple should drop what they're doing and work really hard to get this very small market, really, on Macs, it's going to be terribly difficult to pull it away from PCs, first of all. How are you going to sell PC gamers that are used to paying $800 for a PC and another $400 for a GPU to buy a Mac, the kind of Macs that Apple sells? I mean, there's a lot of problems there. In a lot of ways, it makes more sense to host existing games on, host existing Windows games, or enable them to be ported on the sort of a high level to the Mac. So if they're still kind of the same thing, but they're ported to the Mac to run on, on Macs, but they're still basically a Windows game. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, when you try to get games on the Mac, you're not only competing against Windows games, but you're also competing against consoles which are also kind of difficult to compete against. So, I mean, you've got to think about what market are you trying to get. And where Apple is really working on gaming is obviously first is iOS, because that's their biggest platform. And I think increasingly tvOS, the, the Apple TV 4 chip, you know, had somewhat interesting capacity for games, but, I mean, it was clear, clearly not on the level of PlayStation for Xbox or something. Um, but there's room for that to improve dramatically. I think the current, the current version is what based on a eight. I think that's right. And we're now two generations ahead of that. So I think that's an interesting thing. It's likely Apple's going to come out with another one this year. Um, Apple TV five that could have a lot more power, but I mean, these kind of things take some time to develop. I mean, even, you know, Xbox, the franchise took some time for, Microsoft to get together. And if you look at how much money Microsoft made doing that, they worked really hard for a number of years plowing billions of dollars into that. And they didn't break even for many years. And now they don't make tremendous amounts of money from Xbox. They make, I think most of the money they make is from licensing for software. But they also had a whole lot of ideas about Xbox originals and they were going to produce all this content and movies and TV shows and whatever else, and now that kind of flopped. Imagine if Microsoft had put all that effort into a market that actually existed, like, say, mobile devices. They completely were passed up in that area because they focused so much on games that now they have sort of a break-even, very competitive uh, chunk of gaming 
that isn't really that big, and Apple makes hundreds of billions of dollars from mobile. So, I mean, you know, you not only have to look at what Apple's doing and what they can do, and also what else they can do that's probably better. And I don't think gaming is, you know, PC-style gaming on a Mac is... Um, probably not where it's at for Very them. plausible, yeah. Yeah. I would like to see Apple TV gaming get a lot better, to be honest. I, I, I think there are a couple of problems, and, and not just in the terms of the games that are on it, but or, um, or its capabilities, but I, I point to the... Uh, I, I Honestly, I find a lot of fault with the App Store and the way that it exposes those things to the consumer. There are, there are gems on there that you just can't find or are difficult to find, um, particularly if you're looking for things that have two or more controllers or network play. There's there's no good way to find those. Yeah, they do need to have a better way to market and categorize stuff. You know, once once it's the discovery problem is solved, then I think it'll be a lot easier to convince, uh, you know, developers will want to come because it'll be possible to say, you know, we have a, a four-controller game or a game that uses two controllers and network play kind of thing. And that, that opens up a lot more for it. It's possible to do those kind of games now, and, and there are those games on the system, but it's just so hard to find them. And there's also a big difference. Uh, Apple TV is kind of in the middle of this, but on one end you have games that are that you pay 40 or $80 for a game, and you play it for a long time. Those are kind of PC kind of games, or some console games are like that. Yeah. And the other side, you know, casual gaming is you pay a couple dollars maybe for a game, or maybe it's free and you buy like all this stuff as you're playing it. Both of them make money, but the the whole idea of kind of in-app purchases and cheap one-off games is limiting in terms of how um, complicated or innovative a game is going to be. On a mobile device, you, typically games are designed so that you can put them down. They're not so like a fully involving thing, because what if you get a phone call? Right, they're, they're casual gaming. Yeah, so Apple TV is kind of in the same area. A lot of it is, there's actually some games that are sort of fun to play, but because they follow this in-app gaming model where they're just trying to make you pay for stuff throughout the thing, there's not even an option in some cases to buy a game. You have to just like play it like it's an Android game and it's just constantly trying to get you to buy more coins or something. And right. it's a frustrating experience. I mean, I would rather have nice games for Apple TV that you paid a little bit of money for, but um, that's also a, a business model that's more challenging to figure out how to get people to pay for something. And yeah. it's something that you can't just throw out there. I mean, you have to actually have good product for people to want to pay for it. Because if people pay for games and they're not actually very good, they're not going to come back and buy some more. So it's all, there's a lot of kind of incremental things that will have to grow to get to that point. But I think Apple TV gaming is probably more realistic in terms of for Apple to make a, a more serious gaming thing than expecting, you know, Macs to turn into like a really popular gaming rig. Right. At least in the sense now, of like PC gaming, you know, people that are really into playing games. Yeah. And and the other thing is that we, we ran an article about this story where a uh, a group of enthusiasts took the uh, the new NVIDIA drivers and the uh, the NVIDIA GTX 1080 Ti and put it in an enclosure and connected it to a MacBook Pro and used it as an external GPU. And 
you know the the, the result of their uh, benchmarking was that they found as much as four times the amount of bandwidth using the external GPU than the internal. Right. It says something that they'd actually attach two on each side, so you have multiple <laughs> GPUs um, on the same laptop. And that's yeah, something I'm that probably that. the the next um, that's very likely to be something that the next Mac Pro is going to do too is have Thunderbolt three so that you can have external uh, chassis expansion. And of course, also iMac. You, know, you if if you get a big enough install base, then you have the opportunity. For, right now, that's kind of expensive to do. Uh, no cases are expensive and. Thunderbolt but, cables are expensive, and and graphics cards don't come cheap either. But if you could, uh, just like with the model of iOS, if you can get the volumes up, if you can get build more scale, then you can pull prices down. It's an interesting experiment if nothing else. I mean, so much relies on the GPU as opposed to the CPU, so being able to do that is, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's in some ways it's kind of like the old duo dock concept, right? You have a, a really capable computer when it's in the dock, and when you pull it off the dock, it's a, a portable machine kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, Thunderbolt 3 is basically PCI on a cable, PCIe. So well, yeah, there's, it, there's it doesn't a, run quite as fast as the 16x PCIe though. So it's, right, it's a little right, bit but crippling it's, for graphics. But it's an incredible jump over what typically has been the the um, oh absolutely USB and FireWire are just not a similar type of speed. So I mean, you, you're finally to the point where you can do basically docking through a Thunderbolt port. Plug in a plug in an external GPU and have it actually function functionally no, function. It's, it's it's pretty so. incredible so there you have it you should just take a macbook pro and a, and a good graphics card and do your gaming that way if you're into trying to use what little mac gaming resources available so this this is one you brought up when we were discussing the podcast before we started recording which is the uh the eff and google chromebooks and education right the eff two years ago put in a federal complaint about uh the amount of data that was being shared through Google and its partners in because Google has for the last several years been putting um, the, the Chromebook platform, which is uh, net, netbooks running Chrome OS, which is basically a, a Linux machine running a web browser and then kind of applications running on top of that. So these are very cheap devices. They start off in the range of like $150 and they're paired with very cheap, uh, support services and, and education apps. And there's a lot of schools that, you know, comparing that to a, an iPad that costs, you know, starts at like $300. Um, it's a, an attractive option, especially for grade school kids to give everyone sort of a, a notebook that they're easy to manage. You just like roll them out. Um, kids can share them. So the next class can pick up the notebooks and use them. So there's there's a lot of um, reasons why they've been shipping like billions of these really cheap devices into schools in the U.S. But uh, there's also the the, um, the downside is that nobody has a clear idea on uh, how data is being shared. 
and there's not a lot of consideration being given to that. And that's not something that Google's ever really been concerned about. Um, Google is built around the open web. They're all about just taking data from here and there and putting their ads around it. And they want data. They want to know what makes people buy things. And they want to know what people are doing, what people are looking at. And so going into schools and the the initial complaint was, you know, what is Apple, what is Google doing to siphon off data from kids? That's, you know, why would they even be doing that? And, well, and what kinds of data are they doing siphoning? Yeah. So some of the, some of the outcome of that was that Google um, has policies that restrict how much data they pull out of kids when they're using the core set of like uh, Google apps. The, the apps for education, right? The yeah. uh, docs, slides, sheets. But when these kids that are like, you know, seven years old, third graders are given a machine that um, also has YouTube on it. When they stray outside of these apps and they go to YouTube, now everything they do is being tracked. And other data, other service providers, other education service providers, like routinely track people's stuff. And it's very much like Android, where if you don't limit developers from doing things, they just assume that they should take all your contacts and take everything that they can get on your machine and um, just have it. And that's something that Apple's worked really hard on iOS to limit. Limit what de developers can do so they just can't do the wrong things. And things like location data and um, your contacts and all this other information. Google has never really cared about those kind of things. And when it's consumers, you know, as an adult, you can decide if you think that, you know, buying an Android phone is worth giving all your contacts to Facebook by default and everybody else that puts an app on your phone can just have full access to your phone, basically. Um, you may decide that that's fine, but if you're a kid and you're, the school district is kind of making that choice for you, this is something that concerns a lot of parents because... In, in most of these cases, when it was talking about these parents, they're not even aware that this is happening. And when they start asking questions, they realize that the school doesn't, in many cases, doesn't even give consent, consent mm -hmm. to take all these kids' names and um, IDs and their birth dates and create them accounts. And then in some cases, you know, put them on social networks and put their photo on that and other people can follow them and things like that. Um, it's, it's a concern about data concern about privacy and also you know safety but then on top of that it's also what are we teaching our kids are we teaching them that they are just basically pawns that plug into the corporation that there's no sense of privacy in the world because that's kind of the world that we're making so there's a lot of concerns that that's one of the things that one of several issues that they addressed in this report that uh, i noticed didn't really get a lot of attention like people don't a lot of journalists don't take privacy a very as, as being an important thing. they've already resigned themselves you think yeah and and you see that reflected in a lot of a lot of these reviews of android phones and they you know basically saying hey yeah we gave all our privacy away a long time ago it's like i i didn't <laughs> you know that's not that's not what we want to that's not the bargain you wanted to make here and it's also i don't think it's something we should be just consigning you know it's like hey yeah well corporations have all our data so that's okay you know, I uh, I have children, and they go to a school that has these kind of Chromebook plans, and also bring your own device, and uh, be cautioned against bringing in 
uh, tablets of the iPad persuasion because they were, uh, you know, they, these are expensive devices, and if it gets broken in school, it's heartbreak for everybody kind of thing. Get a cheap Chromebook. We won't, you know, you, you use your iPad at home kind of thing. And I, I sent my kid off to school with a refurbished MacBook that I had uh, put together. It was a 2008 aluminum, 13-inch. Halfway through the year, she said, no, no, let's let's go with an iPad because the battery life is lower on the MacBook and it's heavier and, and all the kinds of problems. So she's going all MacBook there, but she's still using the Google Apps for Education suite that you're talking about. And teachers turn on other services too, right? Turn, teachers turn on... Uh, services like Kaizena, which is sort of a chat-based app with a timeline, and you can attach and upload uh, documents for the teacher to review and make comments on. Um, there's uh, Duolingo, was a good one, where a teacher turned on Duolingo for the class and didn't really pay attention to the social features of it, and so all of a sudden there were adult males following my daughter who weren't in the class. And I, I said to the teacher, listen, you, you need to go and turn those social features off, or at least tell me who, who these adults are that are following my child, because I'm not sure what the educational value here is for, for you know, a 42-year-old male to be following my daughter. It doesn't make sense. Fix that. And so they, they go through these things because we're asking educators to be sysadmins or IT people or to to evaluate not just the product, but also all of its features and make sure the right ones are turned on and the right ones are turned off. And, uh, and as you say, they, the privacy considerations barely come into it. Yeah. It's something a lot of people don't even think about until it becomes a problem. And so, yeah, they, they the EFF has a website where they detail things that schools can do, things that parents can do, kind of get a hold of what's happening. And, um, it's also kind of like an ongoing discussion where they're asking people for input in, in terms of, of understanding the extent of the problem but yeah it's definitely i mean you, you can see both sides obviously it's it's an interesting thing for schools to be able to give people technology and that's easy to use it's all like cloud-backed whatever um it doesn't require people to be to know a lot about technology to get it working but the result is you're seeding a lot of um control over to other companies when you do that and in many cases, we don't really know what's happening with exactly. the data that they have access to. And, and it's one thing for, like, as you said, like it's just one thing for a parent to surrender that kind of, of control. It's another thing for a school to assume it for the child. Right. So um, let's wrap this up. We've been going at this for a little bit here. What would you like to uh, end on? What would you like to have as a parting thought here? What is my parting thought? What was your favorite story from this whole time? from the past couple weeks? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to edit this down a little bit. We, we, we cut out all the silence. but yeah. So one of my favorite stories, and I, I do, you, do you follow Jean-Louis Gasset at yeah. all? So one of his stories was about his time as the uh, the one of, one of the top guys at Apple France, right? Right. And before he went on to do BOS and things like that. And he... Um, was was handling customer service requests over there and he uh you know the first time that, that he got a customer service complaint about an apple product he acted very french he said you know why, who are who are you bringing me this problem and, and you should go away kind of thing and and he realized that the the better response was the the more forgiving one the more generous one right you know 
I'm, you know, he, he said basically, imagine if there were two coins, one that says this is terrible, and the other says that this is nothing. And he says, whichever one you reach for first is is the one that the other person has to grab. So if if someone calls with a complaint, my Apple IIe is broken, and you say, this is nothing, then he responds, no, 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 this is terrible. But if you say, this is terrible, then he goes, well, maybe it's not so bad, right? We're all still alive, no one got hurt kind of thing. So when you're doing customer support, the thing that he learned as, as uh, head of Apple in France was that you always start by saying, this is terrible, which is totally the non-Parisian response. And he said, the, the other thing that stuck with me was he was saying, as you do this, at the very end, you, you, you close by saying, so, and, and by the way, do you have kids? Yeah, I have kids. What, what, uh, what, what size t-shirt do your kids wear? Or what size do your kids wear? Why, why do you ask? For the t-shirts I'm sending, of course. You know, you always, you always throw in something extra that is totally unexpected so that the person has not only had their problem solved, but had it solved in an unexpected and delightful way. And so that is, that is the story from this past week that stuck with me. Yeah, that was a good story. I read that. Um, he was also, uh, he, he was the head of Apple France, and then he came here and basically re- replaced Steve Jobs. Recall. I don't remember that he was actually CEO though. When no, he, did he that. Was, so Jobs wasn't wasn't CEO at the time. He was like the he, head of Macintosh or whatever. Right. And when Jobs left, Jim uh, Gazay took his place. There's a um, a demo that I don't remember at the time. It was the Macintosh Portable, so it had been like 1989. But when he did the demo for that when it first came out, which was like it was like kind of a very big laptop. Um, he actually assembled it on stage, like put it all together by parts and then turned it on and booted it up, which is a pretty ballsy uh, presentation to give. That's a pretty, (laughs) the demo gods are usually not that kind. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Usually, yeah. Fingers crossed and everything's perfect. And then something weird happens, but yeah, you don't usually put together components and boot it up. But yeah, yeah, he, he has several times um, talked to me about articles and uh, he took me out to lunch one time in San Francisco and we talked all about technology. It was really interesting. I'm going to have to. He's one of the kinds again. of people that I. He, I would love to meet him one time. Yeah, he's super interesting. I, I ran BOS for years, and uh, you know, I would I would love to get to to talk to him sometime. Yeah, he has an interesting insight into the computer world. Definitely, for certain. Well, that's all the time we have. This is the Apple Insider podcast. Dan, where can people find you on the internet? I'm on Apple Insider, of course, and also. Uh, on Twitter at Daniel Aaron, E-R-A-M. And I'm at VMarks on Twitter. Please feel free to, to give us your feedback. Tell us what we can do better. And we'll be back next week with more Apple Insider. 